My name is Ian Rowlands. And I'm Colin Williams. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, um, our podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. Um, I believe sounds to be a really integral part of our connection with the non-human world. And this is a second helping of sounds. We've already dealt with three of my most emotive sounds that connect me with the, the non-human world. You're up next, Colin. Okay. And I'm intrigued to find out what your three sounds are. Um, the first sound I'm going to choose, um, I, th- I thought I'm, I'm not going to mess around here. I'm going to go straight for one that's that's a serious noise. Um, and it's the sound of a whale blowing. Explain to me what's going on when a whale blows. So these huge ocean creatures are mammals just like us. And of course, as they dive and as they spend time underwater, they are holding their breath. And just as we, uh, when we come to the surface after we've been holding our breath underwater, we have this great exhalation, this great explosive exhalation. It's exactly the same for whales. And... It is a sound I've heard many hundreds of times now, and every time I do, um, it's a sound that adds to the experience of, uh, because often you're close to these animals, um, or I've been lucky enough to be close to these animals, and see them surface, and so I can see them, and I have a whole sensory experience, and sometimes if they're very close and blowing, you can even smell them as well. Um, and uh, it, it's an extraordinary sound that no matter how many times I hear it, uh, it still fills me with wonder. Hmm. So can you think of a particular instance when, or either the first time, the first time is always the best, Colin. The, yeah, I, 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 there, there are particular instances, and I've, I've, I've experienced um, being close to whales um, in the Arctic Oceans, um, in subtropical oceans. I remember the first time I saw a blue whale and it surfaced very close to our boat and I was in the Arctic Ocean. Um, we were close to land and so there were snow-capped mountains behind us, surrounding us really. We were in a, a deep fjord um, uh, off the north coast of Iceland and when you experience that that blow, it's a sound that, it's a sound that unsettles you. You're already experiencing a sort of vertigo when you see these animals because they are so big and so difficult for you to comprehend and then when you hear this noise um, and you take that noise in um, it makes that vertigo even more dizzying and it's an experience that I never get tired of having or and a sound I never get tired of hearing. That's a really nice phrase I'd not thought of that before sort of vertigo and so I, I'm guessing what you mean is the sense of a uh, perspective but also your size in relation to the animal and the depths to which it goes uh. that's exactly it because we are both mammals we us and the whales are both oxygen breathing mammals um it's a sound that seems to simultaneously close a gap for that reason hmm. and also open up great chasms of difference between yeah, us and them it's yeah. it's a sound that carries it carries messages i think that noise for me it carries messages of 
their collected experience on their journeys uh, around the ocean and as they as they rise and take that breath um it's almost as if they're delivering us that message so that's a really nice sort of poetic sense of the mystery around it and i i was going to ask you as a writer um how you capture that you know sound sound is a let's let's imagine that there's a whale blowing at if I'm describing that to you, can you hear that sound in your head, or is it a is it something that comes more easily to the pen? And maybe I'm asking those questions because for all of us, let's you know, as we're as we're imagining a sound that we're really fond of, it's where is that felt? You know, is it like can you literally hear it in your head? Mm. Is it a an emotion that goes with the what is it that's banking it in the memory? Because there's a lot of science that shows that. Um, we're principally visual animals, so most sounds we remember almost as a sight. Yeah. Now, it's not exclusively true, because certain sounds that are embedded in us last even longer as memories than visual things, but they're much harder for us to remember. You actually try and sit now and think of the sound of a whale blow in your head. You can kind of get it. Grasp For me, if it's like I'm grasping at a shadow, it's almost there, whereas the visuals, and I've seen, like you, lots of whales it's pin sharp you know like i've got the memory in, in my head really clearly if i think about the times when i've heard it i've heard it as i said in 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 the cold oceans with snow on the mountains behind and that's been part of the experience i've heard it where the whale has been invisible where mm-hmm. f- fog and mist on the sea has has rendered the animal invisible and yet the first thing you hear breaking in some cases glass calm water is this huge this explosive breath that comes from nowhere and takes you by surprise and and i've experienced it in the subtropics as well where it's warm and balmy Mm -hmm. and that that the sound seems to lend even more of the exotic to the time and the place i've heard it in at night time in the dark ocean nights when again you can't see much and or just a sliver of light on the horizon maybe and you hear this you hear this noise and it also adds something else for me in those circumstances it it brings a presence it's almost as if you can feel a being Mm. close to you and you can feel a being of great bulk and great age and great gravity and great beauty come into your orbit and as you feel that to hear this sound um because it's unless you know unless you put a hydrophone down into the water or listen very carefully in some cases or or even are in the water with the whale you're generally not going to hear their other voices but this is the voice they share with everyone this is this is the voice that democratizes the whale. It, it it comes to the surface and it shares it with anyone who is there to listen. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because uh, as you were talking, I was uh, and and somebody who is blind listening to this would have a different insight into it. But there's a lot of visuals associated with that sound for you. Um, and the moment it, it crossed over me when your description, it was almost like a Jurassic Park moment there, where where the sound implied the bulk of the animal. So, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, leaning on a triceratops, watching it breathe, or a T-Rex blows your hat off. Just the the force of that, 
you know, and, and, and I know that, that a whale blow is sort of exiting the, the nostrils, which have you know, migrated as an evolutionary mammal to the top of the head. It's exiting at something like uh, you know, 300 miles an hour. It, it's a powerful thing. But for you, it's implying the physical presence. And for me, the ocean is a place that unbalances me and, and us anyway. Um, but then to be out there and to see and hear those animals... Uh, well, I, I've written before that it, it kind of sends the compasses of my heart spinning uh, wildly in, in every direction. I don't, I never know where to put myself um, and I never know what to do with myself immediately after I've had that encounter. It's an extraordinary thing, an extraordinary sound. Nice. So the, the emotion I'm picking up on you is sort of uh, unbalanced. <laughs> when, a, when a whale enters your world, it's, it's disconcerting. Nice, really nice description. What's your next sound? I want this is very seasonal for me, so I want us to imagine that um, it's midsummer here in the sort of temperate latitudes. Um, it's the day has been hot, um, and the world seems hot and heavy, really. And we have, you know, the the, the wildflower meadows near my home um, have been full all day of the buzzing of insects and bees have been fumbling at the heads of the flowers and as the evening falls and as dusk comes in you might hear a strange unearthly drone and it's the drone of the cockchafer beetle in flight. Well, that's a very strong contrast. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah, we went from sea to land really fast. So then. you've you've had time to kind of prepare. I didn't know what you were going to say. Time to prepare for these sounds. Then, um, how did you alight on that one? First of all, it's a very familiar sound to me. Um, that the the cockchafer beetle itself, as a as a species, like lots of other insects, over the past fifty, sixty years here in the UK, have undergone. It's fair to say mixed fortunes um, with the use of a lot of pesticides. The cockchafer beetle had a really tough time, but now it's coming back um, more strongly. Um, and so it's a really, it's becoming a much more familiar sound. And sometimes you get great clouds of them all sort of massing together. And it creates that if you think one cockchafer beetle is an unearthly drone, then having hundreds and thousands of them all around you is an extraordinary experience, even though it's quite a homely experience. You know, the, the, these beetles aren't necessarily rare. Um, but when you hear it for the... I remember hearing it as a kid for the very first time, and I was really alarmed by this noise because it's loud and it's of a particular pitch um, that makes you alarmed. It's not the kind of gentle <laughs> buzzing of the bee. Okay. Um, and it's not the. It's not the sort of. It's certainly not the sort of flap of a butterfly's wing. So is it alarming because of um, the associations with biting, stinging insects? So you, uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm sure there's an immediate response to right. something that buzzes uh, that is deep seated and none of us can avoid of going. Oh, I, I wonder what that is. Can, can it harm me? Um, I don't overtly think like that. But but yeah, it's alarming because it's loud and it's quite a deep 
drone right. as well as it sort of bumps at the windows with the sort of light and things because it's attracted to light. And they're kind of clumsy things, things, aren't they? I mean, they're, that's they what are, I recall. They are clumsy things. They kind of bump around on the window and <laughs> and sort of uh, and sort of just seem to flop down onto the ground as well. They're they're quite large beetles. They're a little over. I guess a little over an inch, mm-hmm. um, and I think one of the reasons I also chose this is that as I get older and I, as I accumulate experience in the natural world, and I'm still accumulating an awful lot of experience each time I each time I step outside, really, I have come to view myself less as an observer of the natural world and. But, but more as a participant. And I think over the last few years, I've come to really want to try and understand the great indefinable us of nature. Um, so not just humans observing it and counting and cataloguing it, but really being part of it and feeling part of it as well and understanding our place in it as a species. The cockchafer beetle kind of tips that, over for me because I, you know, have had a chance to see them really up close, and they're an animal that is so other, mm. is so curious um, that it really sets my mind racing. I can't. I, I feel so distant from this animal. If we, you know, talked about feeling some closeness to a whale because of. The fact we're both mammals, we both breathe air. When you see the cockchafer beetle, it is completely different. Mm. You see its antennae, which are these sort of many-fingered golden reapers. You see its um, elytra, its its wing cases, which are almost like translucent mahogany, um, finely carved into these striations. When it opens those wing cases and 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 spreads its wings you see the kind of what seem like interlocking metal plates down its flanks and its wings are great arcs of silk and struts and cu- really curiously shaped and it's there's a there's a terminus to its abdomen that appears to be like a bronze or brass thorn um it's such a strange animal um, and, and, and really not that much stranger than any other insect, but a curious beast nonetheless. And it makes me feel very separate to the natural world. Mm. I, I really want to feel and write about how I'm part of it. But when you encounter little animals like that, in, in the details are things that make them so, that expose their otherness nice. strongly. Really nice description. I like it. Um a couple of things leapt out to me. One was uh, the sort of mild sense of alarm with the otherness. And I know that um, people studying uh, the way the brain works, and particularly in auditory uh, capacity, there's a what they call the emotional reaction model. So certain sounds will trigger a... Um, it's like sounds that we like or don't like. Mm. There's um, It's a sort of learned thing rather than it being ingrained. They've studied... Uh, Native American tribes and tried playing different sounds or music to them and uh, it's not like it's a constant throughout humanity but that might be there are certain emotional trigger sounds and and that it almost feels like 
that's one of them. The other was I got a real sense of, um, I suppose, a sense of place or a sensory memory that for you went with that sound. Is that right? It's kind of like, are you, is it a place? Is it a time in your life? Is it a, is there a slight melancholy associated with the fact that they are less common? Those experiences are less common, or am I putting words into your mouth there? Yeah, maybe maybe not a particular time or, or not a particular memory, but as uh, as I said, it's very seasonal for me because these are you know these are creatures with just you know a short lifespan, and so we only we only see them and 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 you look at their they have other names as well. So a few that I have here. Um, Maybug and Junebug are both names f- that people use for the cockchafer because right, it's okay. very seasonal, so it's very placed in a season. Uh, Billy Witch, Mitchamador, Midsummerdor. Um, so they've, they've collected all sorts of folk names, um, but all centred very seasonally on this on this patch of midsummer in sort of late May and June. And I've, I have seen them into early August as well, um, which is unusual, but... Um, it, so it's very seasonal for me um and i do have really good memories really just tiny and, and these memories only last moments they're not they're not great big experiences of sitting at my window and hearing this chainsaw come flying through the window um and settling somewhere near the lamp or or, or somewhere where there is light and showing itself to me um it, it's they're such curious visitors um, and I like that they choose to come and share a space with me. Nice. That's a really nice description. So it's kind of, it's a sense of time and, and mm. a, almost like a sense of their world. That's the moment their world interacts with yours. That's right. Yeah. But it's always that noise. It's that noise that sends me there, I think. Mm. And I can, I think unlike the blow of a whale, I think the noise, that noise is less connected to place. So there's a kind of technical term which i think is echoic memory mm. which is a sensory memory really it's like uh specific to you know auditory information coming in and, and setting you in a, a a space really so I, that's what i get with that sound more than it's funny when you were describing the whale blower you were all over all over the world mm. yeah <laughs> and, I, I, and, and, I could and, be anywhere yeah, yeah. And, and with this sound uh, the, the may bug the june bug the cockchafer you're at a moment in time so so it's definitely the sound that takes me there and I remember one particular experience of sitting after a long summer's day I'd been working very hard um, um, cutting wildflower meadow um, near the house and sitting at my in in the gathering dusk sitting at my window and a cockchafer beetle buzzing through into the room and it settled on the spine of a book in my study, and it was a, it's a, it was a, an anthology of um, the poems of Dylan Thomas. And in that book is a poem that I recall the first lines of very, very well. And it is uh, it's a poem called "Love in the Asylum." But the first lines of that poem seem to um, perfectly encapsulate how I respond to the cockchafer beetle and its and its curiousness and its otherness, because the first lines of that poem are, "A stranger has come to share my room in the house." 
found an article um, on the um, from 2013 the top 50 most loved sounds okay, okay I thought you'd be interested yeah, in this and uh, and it, it I suppose it shows the different ways people approach these things because um, you know in at number 28 <laughs> the roar of a Ferrari engine uh, you well. know so you know, uh, my favourite probably was number 31, yeah. which it might, you know, it might be one of your favourites. Piercing the foil on a new jar of coffee was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so there are there are sounds that, that you'll like this one. Yes, so please. I'm, I'm okay. going, I'm going I'm, somewhere. I'm ready. Bear with me, I'm going somewhere with this. So yeah. um, I'm in at number 23. Yeah. It's rising up the charts. Is the electric guitar. Well, there you go. So, and I, I thought what could put, be better? That was pertinent to you as as a guitarist and a musician. What could so, be better? Um, Maybe there's a difference between noise and sound. Okay. We we've chosen to attach the word noise, and I guess you can still say oh, something makes a lovely noise. Mm-hmm. But if something's lovely, we're more likely to use the word sound. And when we use the word noise, we're normally talking about something is noisy. Something is grating, something's getting in our heads through our ears that we don't like. Something's just terribly noisy. Um, it's what you know. When I was a, when I was young and playing my, playing records at high volume in my bedroom, it's what my mum used to call headache music. <laughs> it's it's headache music, um, and so she found it a terrible noise. I found it a lovely sound, um, and I think it's okay as i said not to love a natural sound i think it's i think it's also okay and i think we should positively seek it out and encourage it in ourselves to be unsettled mm. by a natural sound right. because there's a big difference between mm. a, a sound making us afraid or becoming unsettled than a sound we just dislike a sound that grates on us they they are two vastly different feelings and emotions for me Mm. um something can grate on me but for something to unsettle me Mm. that's a much deeper thing um and maybe much more lasting as well and 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 i can i guess sounds that have potentially unsettled me even from the natural world stay with me just as strongly as the sounds that 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 make my heart race interesting i really like it so how important as a musician and you're you're very um uplifted and inspired by the sounds you're talking about how important are sounds to you uh, are you kind of an auditory creature are you kind of one of those people that notices the background ambient sounds as well as the things that are right up front uh, I, me- I i remember it's a bit of a name drop now in so sorry about this but uh, i once met richard adams uh, the author of watership down right, okay um, and he had he was also a keen naturalist, a keen bird watcher, and he was also very into traditional music, traditional English folk music, and he was also very into um, classical music too. And he had he told me a story about a, a, an American friend of his that visited who had never heard a skylark, but they had heard the lark ascending. Okay. 
Vaughan Williams. Vaughan Williams. Um, and he said to his American friend, right, I, I'm going to take you to Watership Down now. I'm going to take you to the top of the down and we will hear a Skylark. And you can hear lots of Skylarks on Watership Down. You can walk up there on any on any given day in reasonable weather and you will hear a Skylark up there. And he told me that as he did this and he took this took his friend there and 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 centered them on the sound and said that is the sound of a skylark he said that that his friend was completely underwhelmed mm-hmm. because it because the skylark didn't sound like the solo violin <laughs> in right. Vaughan Williams the lark ascending um and of, of course that, that person would have known intellectually that it wasn't going to sound like that but but what Vaughan Williams did with that it, that was an interpretation of the sound that the skylark makes it wasn't a transcription of the skylark's song uh, it, it was it's different um and so i i do wish that i could i often notice those things because i would i, I want to interpret them for for me and for others mm. um but it's a very very hard thing to do um um without making it sound as if you're compromising the sound. I get it. Mm. I guess I'm trying to, I'm maybe it's a really nice story that I'm trying to pull at a thread here, which is either going to bring everything closer to us or it's going to unravel, um, which is that, that your ability as a musician or people's appreciation of music or awareness of sound amongst people with a love of music um, might bring them closer to nature than the average person is not tuned in that way. Mm. I'm just wondering. You and you and I both sound people. You you more uh, from a musicianship perspective, but sound is a big part of my experience in the natural world. And uh, and clearly we are we're weird animals because you know most of our mammal cousins out there have amazing sense of smell, amazing sense of sound, very acute visuals, very often able to function in daylight and at night. Um, but for a lot of humans, sound is not a critical function for them. And does that distance us from the natural world or bring us closer? And it's interesting. I love music, but um, walking along with headphones in, I, I, I never do. Hmm. I never do that hmm. because the sound of the world is too important to me. Right. I'm, I'm extremely comfortable with the sound of the world. No, well, that, that, that is whether, a... it, whether it's in the city or, or whether it's, it, it's not, I never walk with music in headphones in right. my ears ever and and there we find ourselves wondering where the human race is going yes with the soundtrack <laughs> that is not the natural world yeah, or the in, non-human world or even the human world indeed. It's, it's, it's something else right? indeed. so do you use sounds to relax because we talk about earbuds and, and mm. uh, you know so are, are in a way it's like is are there particular sounds that you would turn to I, I do tend to seek out the lack of noise to relax. And so uh, if I have been a day in the city or a day in the metropolis, I, 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 I'm very grateful to come back to a place where there is less overt man-made noise. And so I do seek out solitude and quiet to make me relax. But And, and there is still noise there. It's just not at such a high volume. 
I, I have an interesting thing. Years of playing in bands and listening to music at unregulated volumes has also left me with uh, a slight defect in one of my ears. Mm. And when I hear music um, up close or a sound in headphones, if I have something pressed um, up against my ear, in my left ear it, it um, has on its edge a crumbling distortion. Um, and so it's a it's a noise that is constantly there, sort of grating away on the edge of the sound that's coming through the headphones. I don't experience that um, when I'm listening to natural sounds. Okay. Now I can and I can be very close to um, to birdsong or some other natural noise, and I don't have that. Um, and so I I also seek that out so that I don't have this thing that is in my okay. head okay. Um, so so natural sounds are important to me for, for that reason too there's a really nice quote from Thomas More actually was thinking about as you were talking which is uh, silence is not an absence of sound but rather a shifting of attention towards sound that speaks to the soul one isn't it so uh, yeah, on, on that note what's your next sound then sound number three again i, I want to try and set the scene really um and it's a bit like the blow of the whale because it's not a particular time or place um and but if you're if you're walking um in the wilderness um and it doesn't have to be the full wilderness if you're walking in the countryside or, or you're or you're you're walking through even the fringes of an urban environment and maybe you're in trees um, and and you hear the sound of moving water um, because that that is my third sound it's it's the sound of moving water And that was very eloquently described. Is there a particular place you've got in mind when when you say that? No, this is for me. It's focused on rivers, um, and so it's not the crashing of waves onto a shingle beach. It is the it is the movement of water over something, uh, over a rock, um, over a weir, um, uh, through a, a narrow bridge. Um, so. Again, it's quite specific. It's not, you know, great wide, languid, mm. lazy rivers. Mm-hmm. It, it is, it is the movement of, uh, uh, of water over rocks or, or, or water moving quickly past something. I kind of feel like we're back in the womb here, though, Colin. So maybe, maybe uh, yeah, we so. are, and maybe we're back into these meditative sounds because some people certainly use the sound of, of, you know, streams and 
brooks and rivers to to relax to the whole kind of hydrotherapy mm. primal rhythms yeah yeah and it, it's such it's such a it's a multitude of voices for me it's such a layered thing it's many many memories and places layered all together and we've all i hope that we've all been there where, where we're walking and we we don't really know where we are we're not lost exactly but we're uh, we, we walk we might be wandering aimlessly but to hear that noise um and it doesn't have to be a great rushing of white water it doesn't have to be a waterfall or rapids but to hear that noise of moving water i think uh, i am and i think many of us are immediately drawn to it mm. we want to leave the path and see it we want to understand where that noise is coming from and see the water and experience the water that's cool I like it. I, I'm because when uh, when you first said it, I was like, "Meh," <laughs> not because I, I couldn't. Um, it's interesting for me. I couldn't put myself there until you then. But then when you described it that way, I suddenly felt myself running through the trees to find where that waterfall was or the river was flowing. And to get close to the water seems to be a natural mm. human instinct. Mm. And, and it, it, it is very rooted in memory, I think, this one for me as well, um, despite the fact I still experience it all the time. I do a lot of wild swimming and many happy childhood memories of swimming in rivers. Um, and hunting for the river to swim in was, was often part of a great part of the game. And you and I have been together um, in places where there's been rivers and i've i've probably slightly annoyed you okay we need to get closer in we need to get closer to the river i want to see if i can swim in it i want to see if i can put my foot in it i, I want to do something with it i want to be there next to it and and, and becoming and, quite and unreasonable it. as i remember colin actually <laughs> and i and uh, uh, there was one time i remember that we we saw a, a, a bend in a river that was kind of forming a natural pool and it had been a really hot day and this pool was miles away <laughs> and i was and I was thinking in my head, and I think probably thinking out loud, how can we get there? That That's the bit of the river I want to get to and see and experience. I, I, I kind of respect it. I respect it. And um, it, and we are both great admirers of the writer Philip Hoare, who mm. not a day goes by when he's not swimming in the sea, yeah. in all weathers, in pretty much all climates. And yeah. uh, I was uh, following his adventures on Twitter at the moment. And he's, you know, it's, it's the winter. We're recording this at the end of January, and he's swimming in cape cod bay yeah. which is and it's cold one of the uh, coldest places i've ever been yeah. to <laughs> sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. So, so so i i i rivers run through many many of my memories i like it i like your passion and it clearly explains the fact we're running a podcast called beneath the stream mm. amongst other things <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't resist dipping in back into the top 50 colin here because, okay uh, let's, let's have because, it because because the, the sound of a river doesn't feature in the top 50 so most of these who are these people but, but in you know number one <laughs> for multiple weeks running probably yeah, yeah. waves against rocks yeah. uh, number two rain against windows um you have to drop down somewhat to get to 18 with pebbles thrown in water um but watery things you know clearly are are important ones for people i think we are naturally as a species drawn to this stuff we've touched briefly before on our sort of evolutionary memory mm-hmm. that that the perfect landscape for humans it carries echoes of the cradle of civil, the cradle of humankind mm-hmm. it it has echoes of the of the savanna because it is you know a uh, sparsely treed grassy landscape leading down to water mm-hmm. and and so 
I think water does feature, and if I think uh, here in the UK last summer we experienced a drought, mm-hmm. or, or what we call a drought anyway. Um, we certainly experienced about um, seven or eight weeks with no meaningful rainfall, um, and in, in many parts of the country no rainfall at all during that time. And and Melissa Harrison, the the writer Melissa Harrison, uh, wrote a book called Rain, um, where she um, nailed the sentiment that we might, as as here in the UK, we might moan about the rain and whinge about it, but if it is withheld for too long, we become really desperately in need of it. We become uncomfortable if if yeah. if we don't have it, um, and it's and I think that's not just about rain i think that's that's more universal when it comes to being in proximity with water um so 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 i think i think water generally is something that must be really important to us and certainly the sounds seem to attest to that it's very very cool i'm struck there that compared to the other two sounds memories associations this is the one where it's hard to distinguish between the human and the non-human world and the truth is that fundamentally I believe it's all one thing mm. you know, we have a, a non-human element to us we're all one thing yes. um, so that's the sound of civilization or the requirements and the needs of humans on a physical level but it's also serving the spiritual emotional level of a, of a human too intrinsically that is the non-human world and its essential part in our lives in Hindu tradition um, the river Ganges, which is which is obviously an important and sacred place, a sacred river um, for those people. I, I understand some people take pilgrimages to the source of the the Ganges, and as they reach the upper reaches of of the Ganges, um, and the water becomes busier and flows and is shallow, um, they call that part of the river Shiva's matted locks. And so they imbue that flowing water, that moving water, with a great spiritual meaning, um, a, a, a great um, spiritual and deatific image, um, which I think um, I feel. I, I feel that I don't, I don't, I don't share their faith or their beliefs, but I, I feel that um, the making of that that flowing water in into something godlike and something that is giving and generous and and all of those things i, I feel that when i'm you know ne- next to a river because it's it's cooling and it it brings life and and that noise is a is a huge part of that that sound is a huge part of that for me and there's there's a poem i wanted to read well mm. as as we talk about moving water and it there's it's just a part of a stanza by mary oliver mm. Great American poet. Who at the time of recording this uh, has yeah, passed, recently passed, passed the word. on recently. Yeah. And she wrote a lovely poem called At the River Clarion. And in that, the first stanza of that poem, she writes this. I was sitting in the river named Clarion on a water splash stone. And all afternoon I listened to the voices of the river talking. Whenever the water struck a stone, it had something to say. And the water itself, and even the mosses trailing under the water. And slowly, very slowly, it became clear to me what they were saying. Said the river, I am part of holiness. And I too, said the stone, 
and I too whispered the moss beneath the water. Beautiful. Very beautiful. Well, there we should wrap up, I think. Um, I want to wrap up with number 47 in the top 50, Colin, which is crowds chanting at a rock gig. Oh, I love it. So in, in the spirit of, you know, good evening, Wembley, you've been a great audience. <laughs> <laughs> thanks everybody for, for listening you can find more about the show in, in the show notes on uh, www.beneaththestream.com Till next time thank you for listening